Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Kurt Nielsen. Welcome to the podcast, Kirk. Hey, Richard. I'm really excited to uh, be here with you today. Kurt is calling in from your Belinda, California via the phone. Um, so we hope that you can hear Kurt okay, because he has a really important story. Just by way of introduction, Kurt turns 59 about when this podcast is released. So you're going to hear this on once Kurt is 59. He turns 59 on July 1st of 2019. So Kurt and I are the same age. Kurt is married. He has three children. He's active LDS and he is gay. And it, and as I've thought about this interview that we're about to do to Kurt, all day long I've been thinking about the courage it takes for Kurt to do what he's doing. And I've thought about the younger people that come out, and that takes a lot of courage too, so I don't want to minimize that. But being, you know, Kurt's age and being in a, a marriage this long and being closeted, I think you get so used to being closeted um, that this takes tremendous courage and Kurt is not out to too many people but we've been messaging for a while and Kurt just felt it was time to share his story and he offered a wonderful prayer before we started and just prayed that God would loosen his tongue and that's my prayer today is that I will do a good job of bringing Kurt's story out and that you our listeners will be touched by Kurt and his good heart and the things he's about to share and so that we can all understand better and how to minister. And before we get started, I thought I would just, I haven't done this before, but um, I appreciate you that are going to Apple or iTunes and reviewing the podcast, leaving a comment. I think that helps more people engage. And I just like this comment from Todd Squad. Richard Osler has an amazing way of drawing people out to share their vulnerabilities. He's able to ask tough questions without offending and then able to take the answers and add some insight. His questions provoke thought and consideration to so much more than the topic. If I could give it 10 stars, I would. I'm a better person to listening to the Todd podcast. It has taught me the true meaning of love. And, and that's really a credit to all of my guests, especially my LGBTQ friends that are willing to come on and share their stories. So thank you. And others of you that would like to share a thought about the podcast, we appreciate it. But now let's um, turn to Kurt, K-U-R-T Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N. And once again, welcome yeah, to the podcast, that's a, Kurt. That's a good, that's a good Danish spelling. <laughs> Tell us where that spelling's from again. Uh, Denmark, yeah, that's where Nielsen comes from. So tell us, Kurt, why you want to tell your story. Um. Well, first of all, I'm going to give a shout out to your Belinda. Our claim to fame is we have a presidential library in your Belinda, the Richard M. Nixon. So, and it's a beautiful community. And I've uh, been able to raise all my kids here. And I'm so grateful for the ward and the area that I've uh, been here for, you know, for about 20, I think we've been in your Belinda about 23 years. Um, why do I want to share, share my story? Well, I think about sort of the theme. We all have stories like from A to Z. So I don't know, maybe this is the case story of my life, but I've really sought 
inspiration from God on what he would have me share. And, and I've been thinking about sort of the theme of what we'll be talking about. And I, for me, probably the major theme is that of God's relentless pursuit of me. Even when I've seen myself from an early age as someone who was unlovable, unworthy, undesirable, vile in some ways, and so broken, that my only choice was to hide in probably every possible way. I heard someone once say that God likes to come through in the end, which I personally don't like that aspect of God, but I found it to be true. And I know that God has been so patient with me through so many years of my life and and has directed me. And those are some of the things that I want to share. And I've also... Hopefully this thing will come out that I really believe that there is a law of compensation from from God that is enforced for his gay children, because I think he really knows what a challenge um, being gay, um, especially LDS or any Christian gay, that it is really a challenging experience, especially for us that are older, where there was absolutely no space for us to understand this as we've as we've grown up. And so if I come back to why I want to share the story, it's very God-driven. And last year, about a year ago, I went to this wonderful conference back in St. Louis. It's called the Revoice Conference. And it is just, it was created. That was the first year they did it. And it was 500 uh, gay Christians who had not felt like they'd had a voice, thus the title Revoice, and coming together and just speaking and sharing um, their love of Christ and their love of God. And so many of them had just by just by the nature of them coming to their leaders and saying, I'm gay, what do I do with that? So many were turned out from their churches. And yet they look beyond that, and they still love God. And it was so moving to me. And and so when I met that conference, I had this impression that I needed to be more open. And as I pondered that, I also had this impression that God would direct me how and when this was to happen, and that I could I could just put him in the driver's seat. And so... You know, fast forward about a year, you were interviewing, I think it was episode 125, uh, this wonderful young man named Eric, and I was listening to his podcast, and the Spirit came to me and said, this is where I want you to share your story. And so I, uh, I'm going to lean into that. And it was interesting that just a few days after I listened to that podcast and had that impression, um, I was attending a a family home evening that's been created by an adjoining stake where I live um, for LGBTQ plus members. And there I met Eric, who doesn't even live in this area. That's and cool. Sort of a sort of a sign to me that. Um, that God was calling me to do this. Yeah, I'm deeply touched by your introduction, Kurt, and just your good heart. And I hope our listeners can feel that. I've 
been playing with the knobs on my soundboard, which is something I shouldn't be doing because I don't, but I've tried to turn up your volume. So I think people can hear you pretty well, but there may be some background noise. Um, but I okay. thank you for that wonderful introduction and meeting Eric and, and just following your God-given impressions to share your story. Um, tell a little bit about when you first knew you were gay. Um, well, uh, that, that is sort of a complex story. Um, just to give you a little background on my family. So I did mention I was Danish. Um, my extended family on both sides were some of the first converts in the church in Denmark, Wales, Ireland, England, and Sweden. And even to this day, my extended family on both sides are pretty active, faithful members of the church. And I had this great privilege. I didn't think it at the time, but I was raised on a dairy farm in a small town, actually in northern Utah, up in Cache Valley, and have two older brothers, um, a twin brother. Now, the interesting thing about me being a twin is that um, my parents didn't know they were going to have a second baby. And the doctors just kept saying, oh, you're just going to have this big baby. And so anyway, I came two minutes on the heels of my older twin brother. And wow. uh, they had to go wow. out and buy. That's <laughs> crazy. They had to go out and... <laughs> What's that? That's crazy. <laughs> so they had to go out and buy another crib. And, um, so, and then I have a younger sister. So um, my mom had five kids in five years. And uh, so we just sort of grew up in this little block. But from a really, if I look back and sort of this hindsight, I can see at a er really early age, I was, my interests were completely different from my dad and my brothers and the men that were around me. I loved reading. I loved decorating. I loved gardening. I loved art. I loved to talk. I loved writing poetry. I loved clothes. And the what was really shown to me as masculinity around me was, hey, sports, hunting, and I really did not relate to that. And and I was looking in a photo album uh, recently, and maybe this was very telling, you know, once I look back in in time at this, and I'm probably like three or four, and. So I'm sitting on this couch, and so my little sister was probably two, and then I'm in the middle, and then my twin brother is sitting on the other side. And so here's my twin brother. He's got an army helmet on with camouflage, and here I am sitting with a wig holding my teddy bear, who, which has a dress on it. And so something probably, it was pretty obvious something definitely was going on. Um, with this little kid, and I, I was really challenged by that. I remember um, at being five or six and starting school, and and standing at the edge of the playground, and my feet on the asphalt, my toes just barely touching the grass, and I'm watching the little boys uh, my age out playing and kicking the ball, and it was like. I just don't get it. I don't understand that world. I don't even know how to engage that. But then I would look at, I remember looking at the girls behind me playing whatever they were doing and like, well, I don't, I'm not that either. And I remember just being very confused about where I fit 
in the world at a really young age. And, but I had a great mom and, and I think she knowing that just sort of stepped in and, and we loved hanging out. We loved a lot of the same things. Um, she'd even let me play hooky once in a while from schools uh, just so we could be together. And I had so much admiration for my mom. She loved developing new talent. She loved being with her family, especially her sisters. And she had this, this reverence for her mom and dad and her siblings and her ancestors. It was so um, impressive to me. Her concept of family was that within it, we find love and safety. And I think that of more than anything else, her honoring her for family caused me from an early age to want a family of my own. And so from an early age, uh, I didn't have a recognition. I was gay and that could have simply been that there wasn't language for, for what I was experiencing. And again, this wasn't all surprising coming from the culture I grew up in. It's just, you know, basically 100% LDS little community. And I remember my dad, who was actually um, in the Navy in the Korean War, and who grew up in the same small town that I was raised in, telling me once that he didn't even know that being gay was a thing until he was in the Navy and was guarding a sa sailor that had been convicted of the gay act. And I can look back in hindsight and say, well, okay, well, what was going on? I can recognize that probably my first crush uh, with a boy was in seventh grade. And I don't remember anybody's name, but it's, it's interesting to this day, all these years later, I still remember that, that young boy's name. And I dated a lot. That's just what we did. Um, I had girlfriends. And, but as I look back again, I mean, there was, those that I dated, there was really nothing physical about it. And I, I think that because I was LDS, my lack of physical interest in my girlfriends was just translated by me and my girlfriends that I was just super righteous. And I think you as a, you know, as a gay LDS, we can sort of hide behind that. You know, you're just doing the things you're supposed to be doing. Um, I would say that my biggest fear growing up that I just, I didn't fit the mold of what was mirrored for me in masculinity. And, and I had a real fear around being exposed. And I was very conscious, always thinking about, well, how am I walking? How am I talking? How am I sitting? And there was this huge fear that I would be exposed as, as not being a man. And that was, that was actually pretty terrifying for me. And I, again, not knowing really how to relate to um, sort of the peers in my age, I really didn't have a lot of friends. But I remember um, when I was a teenager, God brought me a best friend. And I think it was a very miraculous timing for me. And we shared a lot of the same interests. And, and his, he and his family were a huge blessing for me because it was probably the first time I realized hey, there's other people outside of my own little family unit that can love me. And it also came at a 
point when I was pretty lonely. And it's interesting that years later, uh, this friend would come out gay to me. Wow. And, and to this to this day, um, I still consider him one of my saviors. And it's, it's an ongoing theme in my life is that God seems to bring gay men into my life at many crucial junctions. And I think that says something about us as gay men and that we have a sensitivity. We have, I think, a desire to feel and understand the spirit and God. And it makes sense to me that when I really needed to be saved, that it was always God moving through a gay man, you know, bringing a gay friend into my life that would step up where nobody else was. And so that's been sort of an ongoing theme in my life. Just thanks for sharing some of this. It's just so helpful. And I'm, I think there's no shame that you still remember the, the name of this young man in the seventh grade. Um, your first crush, so to speak, because that's just the reality of your situation. And it would be logical. I remember my first crush. Your name's Jane. Um, she's since <laughs> passed away. But in the eighth grade, and I remember, you know, so I, yeah, I just think that's fine to remember things like that. And it's just the reality of your situation. And I, and I, I think there's no shame in that. And I love the way you just talk about that. And I love the way you talk about not feeling masculine enough and maybe that and everybody needs to fit in to their you know and and so that's a tough road and and i love the way that god brought this other teenager into your life were you suicidal during this time kurt um i was not um i i think i just was doing life i think it was very structured around me about you know, just being part of a family, working hard on a farm, uh, going to school. Um, I think my mother's relationship with me um, gave me a a place to sort of explore some of my interests. And I think because I was so close to, in age to my brothers who were, um, you know, very typically masculine and into sports, but I think even though I wasn't, I think that sort of threw sort of a, an umbrella of protection over me because nobody was going to mess, you know, with me because of my brother. So I, interestingly, I was never teased. I was never, you know, teased growing up. Did you feel you were gay at this point or just didn't have language or was it more just you felt I wasn't masculine enough? It was all around masculinity. I, I never had it cross my mind like, oh, I'm gay. And I, again, because there was no language given yeah. to me to even formulate that. Uh, so it was more around a fear of, of like, I need to be more like the men around me and not understanding, well, I'm not like the men around me. And this is the reason. And maybe that can be a good thing. And that can be a good thing. That's cool for our listeners. Talk about, did you serve a mission? And I did, and that's just what we did in our family. So I followed my two older brothers um, who also served missions. And uh, I was called to, at that time, it was called the Scotland-Glasgow Mission, which took in the west coast of Scotland and Northern Ireland. And it was a tough 
beautiful experience for me. And I learned a lot about myself and God, so I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it was also foundational for me. It was, it was on my mission that I thought and received a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And I can only describe it, Richard, as it was like Pentecostal in nature. It was so profound. And, and I, it's interesting. I just thought, well, I guess that's the testimony in this way that everybody receives. But as I've talked to more people in my family, it seems like this is more of an outlier type of experience. And it seems like most people, it's more of a line upon line, and they just know. And I also had this wonderful experience uh, in the MTC where I was I was walking um, with a group of missionaries, and we were going to go to uh, the Provo Temple. It was early in the morning, and I had this just experience of profound joy. And I don't think even in the rest of my life up to this point, I haven't felt that to that degree again. And I had the impression that this was the type of experience that God lives in this type of joy and this Godhead family. And there was such a desire for me to live in such a way that I could have that. And I remember as we walked toward the temple that my clarity of the spirit became so um, in tune that I could even discern the water drops in the fountain of the temple just rejoicing and laughing as they are meeting the measure of their creation and their joy of being God's creation as water droplets in that fountain. And that was really profound to me. It was, it was this idea that God is profound and there is more to him than just, just what I had probably experienced up to that point of just doing the normal weekly going to church, that there was something deep and glorious about um, this, this Heavenly Father that I had not experienced up to that point. And I've thought about that, like, oh, did that make me anything special? I don't, it really doesn't. I think what God needed for me to know, because he knew what I would be experiencing as a gay man in such a... Um, an unenlightened time, basically, of the church history um, that I needed something so profound that would cement me to the church and keep me active in it. And there was a few times that I wish I hadn't had that experience. Um, but <laughs> That's I had, honest. <laughs> but I had, and it's something that I cannot deny, and it still anchors me to this day, even when I struggle and maybe feel isolated and disconnected. Uh, at church at times is I cannot deny that foundational experience I had that that God is power and he is engaged in my life. And uh, and as we as I share more, more of my story, I hopefully that'll come out. I love that the water drops. There's something that's, you know, that's really cool. I've never, you know, I'll look through, I'll look at fountains differently because of you, Kurt. And God's beautiful creations, um, wherever they are, and that is part of His beautiful creation. And 
I sometimes think, because I served on the Isle of Man as part of the Manchester mission about the same time, and on the northern part of the Isle of Man, we could look into southwest Scotland, and on the east side of the Isle of Man, though the west side, we could look into northern Ireland. Ireland. So maybe I saw you from a distance while you were serving. We had a lot more. We were not at war in the Isle of Man like you were in northern Ireland um, during that time. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was the height of the IRA when when I was in Belfast, and we would hear bombs go off at night in the city. And instead of fire damage cells, you'd walk by a shop and it'd be a bomb damage cell. Wow. <laughs> what a unique time to be in Northern Ireland. Thank you for your missionary service and a wonderful part of the world that we both love. Talk about um, any experiences from your mission you'd like to share. Uh, yeah, there was one that was really, I want to share, that was really profound for me. I had moved from Belfast to another hot spot, which was called Londonderry. And I had a brand new missionary, and we were out tracking one night. And I look at the end, we're sort of on this small street, and on each end there was lined up probably about, you know, 15 young gang members on each end of the street and looking at us. And I just sort of took my companion and we walked up to one end and I just started talking to him for a little bit. And it was just, you know, I thought it was, you know, in hell. I mean, it was such darkness. And, and I just, I mean, I knew they were there for, for us, you know, and they had their eyes on us. And so I said, Hey, we got to go. And so we started walking and now both sides of the gang joined together and started following us. And it was a pretty deserted area, um, really with nobody around. And and now son, they're behind us and they start, you know, throwing like rocks and bottles that are hitting us and and eventually we stop and then they circle around us and they're you know, and then it's like the circle just sort of closing in on us. And I remember praying because I had this, and I remembered this so distinctly uh, when I was set apart for my mission that I would be physically protected. And I called on that, and, and I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I knew God had given me that promise. And just as I said that prayer, this car out of the middle of nowhere, the streets have been deserted, just comes by, pulls up a little bit ahead of us where this was happening, and just stops and just and just there's I look over there and there's just two men sitting in the front of this car and they're just looking ahead and I when this car stopped this gang pulled back from us and so I took my companion and we walked over there and and I just said can I can we get a ride out of here and they said yes um, yeah just get in the back of the seat uh, back seat of the car and we're pulling away, and this gang just becomes enraged, and they are pelting this car with bottles and rocks and just bricks that are bouncing off this car. It must have just trashed it. And the interesting thing for me to this day is these two men didn't even comment on what was going on. They just looked ahead, 
And um, all they said is, where can we drop you off? And so that's my little story of, I believe wow. being saved by angels. <laughs> I believe it too, Kurt. Just That's a pretty touching story. Um, talk about coming home from your mission and what was life like for you when you returned? Well, I came home and I had went, I went to a year of college before my mission. And the idea at that time was I wanted to be a doctor. So I was studying pre-med. And so I came back and sort of continued that. But I was home about a year and my mother, who had not really had any health problems, all of a sudden couldn't breathe one day. And we uh, took her to the hospital and found out that she had was just full of cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer. And I was so quick, like within uh, several weeks, she passed away. So from wow. having this, having my mom who was, you know, at the time, really was the only person I thought really loved me. And, excuse me, and to have her um, taken so quickly. And it was, it was interesting, Richard, that I was, when she was sick, I, I remember praying and, and, and I had the Spirit just say, well, everything will be okay. And I took that as, oh, she'll be okay. But then she passed away, and that's really taken me decades to pretty much understand what God was trying to tell me there. And, and in some, a lot of ways, it has been okay. I, I was bearing my testimony a few weeks ago in sacrament meeting, and just I was thinking about that impression that I had. And the Spirit just basically clarified that even more and said, haven't I brought wonderful women into your life to compensate for your mom's death. I brought you a wonderful wife. I brought you a wonderful daughter. And now I have a wonderful daughter-in-law who, who in so many ways have filled that void. And it's taken me really decades to understand what that impression was. But from her death was the first time you'd asked before if I, as a teenager, had become depressed. I hadn't, but I certainly did after my mom's death, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. My father, everybody was in such grief that there was really no capacity for anybody to sort of look at what was going on with me at the time, and I just was collapsing emotionally and had be and did become suicidal, and, for, and that's the first time I'd ever came into such a, a such a dark space and i have a lot of compassion now when i hear somebody who says that they're suicidal i know what that feels like i know how hopeless and dark um that can feel and and then god again is going to reach down and save me and 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 in only way he could and i had in college i had um, met a met a, a friend and made a friend and he had invited me to say, Hey, come over and uh I was living at home going to school. He said, Hey, there's an opening in our apartment, come over and and I did and that was good for me in some ways, but I was still extremely depressed. I was sleeping a lot and 
and he became really concerned for me. And he just came to me one time and just said, hey, I'm seeing a therapist and I made an appointment for you. And here it is. Here's the address. Here's the date. And I want you to go. And and I went and it was so miraculously healing for me just to speak for the first time uh, to someone that I had issues and 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 I was able to regain some hope and felt the the depression subside. And it was in that therapist's office. It was the first time I really uttered the words that I'm gay. And so I was 22. And I remember recently reading a study that just came out that the it was around it's around 1314 when somebody who's gay first recognizes. Um, that they're gay, but it's not until they're around 21, 22 that they admit that to anybody. And and it makes me think, because I lived it, and I would always ask the question, well, what do you think is going on in those seven years in that young man or young woman's life? And, uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of issues going on. And this friend, um, like my friend in, when I was a teenager, he later shares with me that he is gay. Wow. And, and so that was the second time God used one of his gay sons to literally, literally save me. Yeah, I keep telling, this is, I think we're all on the edge of our seats, Kurt, and um, just as you're sharing your journey, and I just love your story because it's just, it's different than a lot of our stories that are younger men and women. And I think you bring us to an era where there was just less talking about it. And so this is helpful. So go ahead and keep sharing your story. Well, um, even though in that therapist's office, I said, Hey, I'm gay, but I probably didn't use that term because we weren't allowed to use that term back then. It was probably I'm seeing sex attracted or something. Um, but I pretty, quickly shelved that idea that I was gay because I still, again, this is in the early 80s, and I still didn't have the context to know what to do with that knowledge. And just to put it in context, it was only a little over 10 years prior to that, that the term homosexuality first showed up in one of our handbooks of instruction. So I was aware of President Kimball's teaching that it could be overcome with effort. Um, that's really pretty much all I knew, that if I lived the gospel and I put enough effort into it, um, that I wouldn't need to worry about it, that it would just take care of itself. And I also knew, and it had this impression for a lot of years and a desire to have a family. And so I would date, and uh, people around me, of course, were getting married. And I remember having the thought, wow, why is that so easy for them? And it just seems so complex for me. Um, but I kept going back. I had this line in my patriarchal blessing that kept coming back to me that said, the time will come when you will go to the house of the Lord and there be sealed for time and all eternity to a true and loving con companion. Um, so I had that in the back of my mind, but I'm like getting, you know, 22, 23, 24, 25. And I remember in my mid-20s thinking about that and the spirit coming to me and just say and interpreting that and saying, well, Kurt, what this means is that it will be a period of time. 
before you get married. And so that gave me some patience um, to just sort of continue on and, and sort of trust in God. Um, so I continued uh, school and I finished my uh, pre-med degree, but then I had this just very perplexing um, impression that I wasn't meant to pursue being a doctor. Um, it seems like God, so much in my life just tells me something, and then I'm just sort of like, well, what does that mean? And then I have to sort of figure that out, and he sort of guides me. And um, But that was, one of that, that was one of those experiences, like, okay, well, what do I do now? But I'm willing to, like, move forward and say, okay, well, maybe I'll figure something else out. I was willing to trust in that. And so I was really confused, and I had this dream one night when I was pondering about what I needed to do, and in the dream, I am told that you need to go back to school and become a landscape architect. Wow. Now, that is a, that's now, very different than what you're doing. Was, I had never heard of that before. What is that? I mean, that's it wasn't like something that's even in my wheelhouse, like, oh, I know what a landscape architect is. <laughs> Wow. And so I did some research and discovered, oh, there actually was something called a landscape architect. And um, and I found out there were only two schools in the West um, that offered that as a degree. And one of them just happened to be the university I was attending. And because of that dream, I, okay, I'm going to do that. I, it took me like three more years to get a degree in landscape architecture, but I graduated at the top of my class and I actually applied and was accepted to an Ivy League school in a graduate program for landscape architecture. And then God, as he seems to have done so many times in my life, uh, he steps in and says, uh, I don't, I don't want you to pursue a graduate work. <laughs> and so, okay, um, what do I do? So I thought, okay, well, I have this degree. So I moved to Salt Lake and, and began to work for a small landscape architectural firm. And, but it's interesting at that time, um, so I was maybe 27, 28, um, the spirit came back and I had this impression that the time, the period, of time that he had foretold that I would get married, that I was in that, and that that was going to happen um, shortly. And so I did meet, and I became engaged to a young woman from my singles ward in Salt Lake. But as I thought about it, and I reflected on it, I knew that I loved the idea of getting married more than I loved her. And so as difficult as that decision was, I broke that engagement off. and. And it was really a tough time for me because I thought, well, am I missing out on this opportunity that, that God has promised me? And, and so at that point, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I've been in Utah for coming up on three decades. I just wanted a change. And so I'm like, I just want to go anywhere else to just try something new. And so I sent my resume out all over the country, and I was – um, applying for positions wherever I can find them. And it was during that time that I had another dream 
And in this dream, I was shown a city I had visited as a teenager, Irvine, California, and was told that this is where I needed to work. And as hard as I looked for a firm in Irvine, I couldn't find one. And the closest one I could find was there was a job opening in Newport Beach in a landscape architecture firm. And so I'd also applied to a firm up in San Francisco, and I was contacted by that firm and the firm in Newport Beach for an interview. And that one of the firms was in San Francisco to this day probably isn't lost on me. Um, but when I called the firm in Newport Beach to go over the details, they informed me that they had just like the week before relocated to Irvine. And so I interviewed with both firms and was offered jobs by both. And the San Francisco firm would have been my dream job, but because of the dream um, and the direction I'd had in that, I accepted the job in Irvine. Wow. Um, and I lived in Irvine for a little bit, so I'm kind of following you around the world here between Scotland and Irvine. And <laughs> tell us about meeting your wife in this area. So it's probably one the first week. Um, so I move and um, start my job, and the first week I'm attending the singles ward, which was at the time the happening ward at Irvine, and. I, it's just jam-packed from front to back. And there was, I was sitting closer to the front and there was only a few, you know, maybe five or six seats um, next to me that were open. And right before the meeting started, this young lady comes in with sort of her entourage and she said, hey, can you move over? And so I did and she sat by me and we just, I was just immediately drawn to her um, in a way I'd never been drawn to any other woman that I'd ever dated. She was funny. She was, we were cracking up. She was, you know, we were flirting and I'm not a big flirty person. It's like, I don't even really know, didn't even know how to do that. But with her, it's like, wow, I'm pretty good at that. And so she mentioned that she had just finished uh, being a Relief Society president in her singles ward and she was just she was just ward hopping and i thought oh my gosh i might not ever see her again and so the only time i've ever done it um i asked for her telephone number and she gave that to me and so we um our first date happened to be on saint patrick's day and she's we're talking about our lives and i told her i i was like 28 29 i can't remember at the time and she is like, no, you're not. You're, she thought I was like 21. <laughs> um, and so I actually get carded on my first date with her. She made me prove it by pulling out my driver's license. Um, and she was older. So my wife is about three, three and a half years older than me. And she'd had a really full life up to that point. She's traveled the world. She was working. She had bought her first home and, you know, dated and just, um, just was just enjoying life. And, you know, what's interesting um, is that she, before, just before we met, she had had a powerful spiritual experience that 
the home that she just bought that she would meet and fall in love with the man she was going to marry. So that was just maybe a month or two before we met. And so we dated. Um, it was interesting for me. It's like I'm with this woman that I am attracted to on every level. And we got engaged and we ended up getting married in the LA temple like eight months later after we met. And, you know, as some Mormons do, we had our first baby nine months later and uh, which is my, my daughter, Samantha. And then we had two sons uh, following over the next several years, um, Jacob and Matthew. And as I reflect on all this maneuvering, like don't go to medical school, don't do um, your graduate work in landscape architecture on the East Coast, it's pretty clear to me that all that maneuvering that God had been doing in my life really had nothing to do with my career, but had everything to do with me meeting Mary. I'm just so touched with the story to this point, Kurt, just acting on impressions. And I think of Elder Uchtdorf's talk where we have all this impressionistic painting, um, but it's often not till older in our lives or till well, things kind of into clarity that we understand the hand of the Lord in our lives and we're acting on impressions. And often he doesn't just give us full light and understanding. And it's later when we look back. And so this is... I love the way, you know, he got you to Irvine to meet Mary, and that was all part of the plan, and then you had these wonderful three children. Um, do you consider yourself bisexual, Kurt? Um, I've been asked that a lot um, because I am married to a woman, and the answer is no. Um, my orientation is uh, is toward men. That's where I'm attracted. But the best way I could probably describe it, Richard, is that I have an orientation to one very specific woman. And the other people that I know that are unmixed orientation marriages, I think they would all describe it that way. Um, that they are just, that there is just one very specific woman um, that that they can have an orientation toward. Um, it's, it's also very interesting to me, and it seems to be the mo- case in most gay men, life and mixed orientation marriage, is that our physical attractions seem to come via being emotionally attracted first to our wives, um, which seems to be sort of just opposite, I would say, for most straight men, that they seem to have the physical attraction hit him first, and then hopefully it it sort of settles into also an emotional attraction. Um, I am grateful for um, Mary, that's my wife, in so many ways. She has such a deep commitment to her faith, and she performs anything she's asked with perfection, being a seminary teacher, she just finished being uh, a Relief Society president in our ward, and and she just amazes me that she is one who fulfills her calling um, and seeks God's impressions of what she needs to do, and she does magnify it. And she's also, which I need because I have a little more in my life, a little more... Um, a little more stoic. She is funny. She brings that part out of me. 
She's also the smartest woman I've ever met. And if I have to look back, again, looking back at my blessing in my patriarchal blessing that talks about the traits that my companion would have, which is true and loving, um, I would say that Mary, I've learned, and it's taken me, we're coming up on 29 years of marriage, is that she completely um, fulfills that, that she has been true and loving, and I, I deeply love her. This is a beautiful love story, and I love doing podcasts of mixed orientation marriages at work. <laughs> Because I think we see some that kind of blow up, and then at least I thought that just never could work. And the church, we both know the church doesn't prescribe this, but I think through personal revelation, members are finding themselves in a mixed orientation marriages that work. And I love that you're sharing your story. I know many people in my circle that are in mixed orientation marriages, and I think your story helps them to see a path and see what you're doing and, and your wife's doing to make this marriage work. Um, did you tell Mary you were gay before you got married? I didn't share with Mary that I was gay before we were married. And, and it's interesting because I don't sit back and go, did I make some deliberate choice to be deceptive to her? Um, I just think it, I, I shelved it so deeply and I felt uh, and basically because this is sort of what I was taught, um, that God had brought me into that marriage that was very clear to me and that he would take care of it. And I guess in many ways he has taken care of it, probably just not in the way I might have expected at the time. Um, but I found my, you know, through the years of marriage that my attractions didn't go away but continued to be as persistent as ever. And it did cause me a lot of shame. Um, like, well, what am I doing wrong? I'm trying to do everything that I felt I was meant to do. I'm, I'm, I'm raising my kids. I'm supporting my family. I'm accepting church callings. I'm being active. But uh, this, uh, this aspect of me, which I believed, I mean, because that's what, I had been sort of led to believe that by doing these things that the end result would be that this would go away. And so, you know, I'm sort of doing life and and not thinking about it too hardly, but I I got to to the age of 44 and it was a really an interesting experience that I had because I had, first of all I had the impression that I was literally in the exact middle year of my life. So I guess if I live past 88, people will know this wasn't exactly right. But um, so I'm at 44 and I'm, and I'm having this impression. And then the spirit, um, as I'm pondering this, like, why am I being given this, this understanding about being 44? And the spirit comes to me and, and I have this distinct question and, and the spirit asks me, if I wanted to carry the baggage I had for the first 44 years of my life into the remaining 44 years of my life. And I at the time thought, oh, the baggage the spirit was referring to was my being gay. Um, but I would later find out that uh, God had a lot bigger plans for me around healing and becoming more whole and self-actualized. And, and so, you know, that's, again, looking in hindsight and knowing that. So 
I just thought, well, what do I do with this? So I started therapy, which was really a tough thing for me. And I remember it took me like two or three times to tell the therapist, hey, I'm gay. I probably whispered it because um, I still had so much shame around it. Um, and even and it, this therapist I was led to, I, I felt really directed to go to him. And thank goodness God led me to a therapist that showed me what I needed to focus on, the really deep wounds I had around my masculinity and a lot of the deep shame I carried with me throughout my life, especially not feeling man enough. And it was through therapy um, that I finally had the courage or the words to share with Mary that I was gay. And I still believed that this, at this time that this was something that I could change uh, if I put the effort into it. And there was a lot of stories out there of people supposedly, hey, I was able to change. And I said, hey, I can do that. And so over the next few years, I began to read all the books I could find on the topic. And I attended men's retreats for gay men and just um, sort of put my efforts in that, in that, in those ways. It's interesting for me. And it's so courageous of you just to share your story, but you come out in different periods of time where then you're adopting sort of the philosophies of the culture and religious organizations. And so at 44, you come out to a therapist and, but then you're put into this world that you can change this even, you know, and it's just interesting for me. I, I really one of, I think one of the focuses of this podcast is to take shame away around from sexual orientation because you know this because you've walked this road, just how much shame you held for something I think that nobody should feel shame for. This is how everybody, I just really feel strongly that everybody's created straight or LGBTQ as God wanted them to be created. And some, and even straight people have ranges of masculinity. And, and mm -hmm. so I just think that as we're maturing as a society and we're seeing everybody equal that, and people are listening to your podcast, I just hope that you can use Kurt as an example and, and sure. look at yourself and not feel shame for who you are and the way God's created you. And, and some of us need to go to therapists to do that. And some of us can do that um, on our own. And some of us can do that through helping, having Christ in our life. And I think you've done all those, but I think going to a therapist is not a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of great strength on your part, Kurt, and great courage. Um, so um, did you ever talk to a priesthood leader and come out to a priesthood leader? Yeah, it was, it was during this time after starting therapy that and I knew I was living a good life. It's not like I needed to go to a bishop and confess, you know, any uh, deep, dark sins that I had. But just by the nature of being gay, I felt that I was sinning. And just as you had mentioned, there was so much shame that was around that for me. Just to have that orientation was like, I, there's something sort of vile about me. But I got the courage, and I made an appointment with my bishop at the time. And I go into his office, and I sit down, and he goes, Okay, Kurt, um, what can I do for you? And I just, I remember I just started sobbing. It's like uncontrollably sobbing. And that was just somewhat surprising to me. But I think there was just so much shame held into me 
and and it was it was it was interesting for me because the bishop um, interjects and says, uh, "Do you remember when last year we were at a ward party in the park and we just talked for a few minutes and and I said, "Yeah, I, I remember that." And he said, there was no reason for me to think this. And I had not thought this in all the years that we have known each other, but I had the impression that you were gay. And he said that after that, he was really perplexed on what to do with that information. And his first thought was, well, I I need to call Kurt in. I need to talk to him. And he said that the spirit in no uncertain terms said, no, Kurt will come in when he's ready. And then he acknowledges it to this day through some of his own misunderstanding and ignorance. His next thought was, oh, my gosh, you know, Kurt's um, the deacon's quorum advisor. And I, I, I must ha- I need to release him from that. And he said at the time that up to that point, he had never had such a direct um, voice from the Spirit come to him and say, no, Kurt is where I want him to be and need him to be. And so he had spent, the, you know, that year just trying to understand more about what it means to be gay and had read a lot in preparation. He was preparing himself for the inevitable thing that he believed that I would come in and share that with him. And so so that was my first experience with a priesthood leader. And there was something profound about that, because I think in a lot of ways, my bishop was representing the church and God to me at that moment. Like, I needed to believe through a priesthood leader that I was acceptable, that I could be loved, and and that God moved through him and a really powerful way for me to leave that meeting and say, I am acceptable, you know, that God knows me and would do such such a profound thing with a priesthood leader, you know, just for me and to meet a very specific need I had at the time. Um, there, it was during that period that uh, there was really, really several important things that came out of this therapy and talking to my bishop. Uh, the first is that God's love and truth can be found in many places beside our faith. And in fact, God led me outside of our faith because our faith had very little to say at the time on how to flourish as a gay Christian. And that's really profound to me, Richard, because it shows me that Sometimes, even in our faith, if we're not really willing to ask the right questions, if we're not being curious, there's really not much insight God can give us. And so what I found out is in these other faith traditions that they were asking the questions, and there was writers and people thinking about these issues, and God seemed to continually lead me to really impactful Um, voices out there, which I wasn't able to find in our faith. And as I even attended some of these uh, weekend retreats, um, he raised up some really wonderful friends that I have to this day uh, that support me and 
and we seem to be able to walk together in this. But probably the most important realization, um, even though I was getting emotionally healthy in so many ways, is that I came to the understanding that my orientation did not budge. And there was something really freeing to me about that because I knew that I was accepted by God. I'd had that experience with my bishop. I knew I was trying to live a good life. I knew I'd put, if there was, if there, if it was possible to change, I would think that the effort that I put in toward that would have caused that. And so I felt at peace realizing that there wasn't change and maybe God could change, but he seems to choose um, for his purposes not to change us. And that was really freeing to me and was very relieving um, for me to have that information. It was also during this time that that I had this like just really profound dream. And in the dream, I was standing in front of the Savior and in between us was a hologram image of myself, you know, looking great, you know, dressed and, you know, just this perfect image of facade of what I have tried to project to the world. Of course, me behind that hologram, you know, I'm sort of shabby and, you know, all all the things I probably truly thought about myself. And But the hologram image is the one that's speaking. So, so I have my Savior in front of me, this hologram image speaking and me behind it. And he's praising Christ and he's saying all sorts of this beautiful, flowery, eloquent things that and as the hologram is speaking, the Savior, I'm becoming aware, it's because he's not speaking, he's not responding at all, but he's becoming more and more agitated until he finally had enough. And he said to me, I don't want him, I want you. And then he reaches through the hologram, which evaporated the moment he touched it, and pulled me into his arms. And this was a profound confirmation to me that God knew me as I was and loved me. And um, and I also come to realize that God wanted all of me, uh, the true me, and not the facade that showed up each week to church pretending to be straight in order to fit in. And I learned that God doesn't want his children to fit in. He wants them to belong to this wonderful body of Christ. And once I accepted that, that God loves all of me, he put me on this path, uh, which I'm still walking today, of discovering that my wife, my children, my friends could love me, uh, all of me as well. And this has given me the courage um, to this day, you know, to come onto this podcast and open my mouth and share my story and I think one of the problems of shame as a gay man, a gay woman, is is that we believe that we really can't truly be loved. And so, and the reason being is we put out these facades and we know that maybe people, what we've created is being loved, but we really deep down know that's not really us. And, and so we have this disconnect, like if people really knew me. Um, they couldn't love me. And I think that's one of the most important reasons of why we do come out. And again, it doesn't need to be to everybody. I've spent a lot of years coming out 
individually to different people and but just knowing that that we can be seen and loved um it was also um i had some direction it was which came in sort of a different way to me i was i was Thinking about this movie, it's an old movie from the 1940s, Shirley Temple, the Bluebird, and probably nobody has any idea who that is. But um, in this movie, there's this little girl, and she's just miserable and unhappy and sort of mean and discontent. And she has this fairy come to her and tells her, hey, if you go out on this journey, and find this bluebird, you're going to be able to be happy. And so she, with her little brother and some companions, they go on this this journey. And they're, they first of all go in the past, and her grandparents who are dead, she tries to find the bluebird there. She can't. She goes and lives with this wealthy family and has everything wealth can give her, and she doesn't find it there. And then she had this just impression, I want to go home. And uh, she eventually goes home. And there's this, she had, at the beginning of the movie, she had found this, this like she thought was a blackbird. But when she looks up at the cage, she sees that it was actually a bluebird. And she's able to find the happiness. And so I felt directed uh, this period of my life to just emotionally come home and and look for my support in my marriage with my children raising them in my ward in my quorum and i began to for me it was it was transformative to create um, more of this community and instead of believing that happiness was out there somewhere is i began to um began to put more of my efforts on of making my happiness and experiencing it within uh, the things that God had already given me. You know, there's a lot of things uh, that just come to rush to my mind. I love you coming out to your bishop, and I love, I think I meet with parents sometimes that wonder if they have an LGBTQ child or and I think generally they should stay close with Heavenly Father and act on their impressions. It may be appropriate at times in probably the exception to ask somebody if they're gay, but I think most of the time it needs to be the LGBTQ person to coming out <clears throat> like your bishop did. And during that time, use it as a time to learn and prepare and grow so that LGBTQ people around you can come out. And I love your bishop being close enough to the spirit, Kurt, that he didn't release you from being a deacon squirm instructor, and that instead God told him just the opposite, that he wanted you to be that deacon squirm instructor. And I think that was for the deacons, because I'll bet you were you're really helping him, but I think it was partly for you that God knew you were worthy and capable and, and a priesthood holder that could bless the lives of of the people in your ward. And this hologram story, the, the whole podcast were just the hologram story. We could just say amen and go home. That is such a powerful story. And I apologize for our listeners if we're getting a little background. As I'm talking, we're getting more of that than when Kurt's talking. Um, but I just love what Christ wanted in you. He wanted all of you. And if you're an LGBTQ person listening, that is... Um, that's a powerful story for all of us, and so thank you for sharing that. 
Um, what were some of the affirming conversations or moments you've had with those you love? As, as I mentioned, so over the last, uh, of not being completely out, but I did feel this impression that I needed to be seen. And so I began to just choose um, different men that I felt that I could love and trust. And there was something, I had this need because I had such a fear around my own masculinity that I was looking, I think I had this need to be affirmed by men, you know, that I knew. Um, and so one of the first things I did is I went to my, I was in the elders quorum at the time, and I went to my elders quorum president and I said, I want to home teach these specific men. And I said, you know, use your inspiration and I'm okay if it's not, but he came back and said, yeah, that's fine. So one of these men who is a dear friend to me is his name's Mark. And I started home teaching his family and I just, you know, fell in love with them and they fell in love with me and we're still just, you know, love, we love each other to this day. But I had this impression that I wanted to share with Mark um, that I was gay. It was important to me to be seen by other men in that way. And so we, I went to his house and we went into his office and we're talking and, and I just said, you know, Mark, I wanted to share with you that I'm gay. And to me, even to this day, this is probably the most powerful response somebody has given me to this day. So Mark looks at me and he goes, you know, Kurt, there are two things that I just have had a big problem with in my life. And he said, one of them is gay people and the other is fat people. And now here I am fat and my best friend is gay. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's interesting because even to this day, he will say that that me sharing that was transformative to him and wanting to care and love for people on the fringe. And he is such an example to me to this day of just, you know, reaching out and, and loving on people that we would call more on the fringes in our ward. And so I thought that was a beautiful experience. And then just, you know, recently, um, I have a younger friend who's a uh, actually a college professor, and he, um, he was very vulnerable with me and was sharing some of his challenges around faith. And I, I just wasn't just a listening ear for him. And, and we would meet a lot and just talk about where he was at. And he was able to sort of move through a lot of those issues. And I think just having a listening ear and somebody that was non-judgmental, something I've learned um, because of my experience of being gay. And um, so we'd known each other for you know a few years and I had this impression that I wanted to share it with him. And so we met for breakfast and he, uh, I said, you know, I wanted to share this with you, Ryan, that I'm, you know, gay. That's part of my experience. And, he said um, that when I had asked him out for dinner, uh, that he had had this impression that I was going to share that with him. And he, again, had not thought that before. And he thought, and he goes, my next thought was, well, if Kurt doesn't share this with me, you know, if Kurt doesn't share this with me, you know, what kind of friend am I? And so 
so I've had really good experience, but I felt that God has sort of, I've wanted God to sort of lead me into those. And, and as I've taken the courage to, to do, um, to follow those impressions that they've turned out good. I've also had really beautiful experience um, sharing with my children. As I mentioned, my, my oldest daughter, Samantha, um, who lives actually in Salt Lake, is we had an opportunity to go spend some time up um, further north where I grew up and spend some time with my sister. And, and I had not thought, I knew there would be a time when I wanted to share with my daughter that I was gay, but had not felt that impression up to that point. And we got up there late and I went to bed, we went to bed and I again had God teach me this beautiful thing in a dream. And in the dream, I'm sharing with Sam that I'm gay, you know, your dad's gay. And in the dream, she comes back and she tells me how sad she would have been to have not known that about me and perhaps had discovered it later, maybe after I'd passed away that she was reading something and, and that it would have been just heartbreaking for her. So, so anyway, I had that dream. And then the next day we were hanging out and just had some alone time together. And I, the dream came back to me and I, I just thought, okay, God is, directing me to share that this is the right timing. And so I shared it. And the most fascinating thing happened is after I shared with her that her dad was gay, that she, the words she spoke back to me were almost verbatim of what she had said and what I'd heard her say in the dream the night before. And so it was a real, um, again, testimony of God being willing to be in this driver's seat. Um, and as I've shared with over this last year of wanting to be more open, uh, even with Mary and, and some of the challenges that we both um, feel around that, I've, I've been able to see Mary be more open and sort of coming out in her own way uh, with her friends. And she has really close, she has four sisters that she's really close with. But she's began to share that with um, her friends and family, people that she feels safe with. And, and I was deeply touched uh, when she told me that after she shared with them that I was gay, that she deliberately stood back to observe. Now, and this is probably some of my own insecurities, I thought the next sentence she was going to say was that she wanted to observe how they would be treating her. But what she said was she stood back to observe that I wasn't treated differently by them and how angry that would have made her if they had treated me differently. And that was, that's who my wife is. I mean, she is this true and loving companion. Thank you, Mary, if you're listening and your kids um, for walking this road as a family together and hopefully bringing you closer together as you navigate um, complicated stuff and have more honest, vulnerable to conversations that often bring us together. Um, that is, that's, I just appreciate you sharing that because there's not a lot of stories I have on the podcast of the straight spouse sort of navigating that and how she or he 
shares with friends, but I love that story, Kurt. Um, so if any of your family members are listening, I just put my arms around you as well as you, Kurt, and say you're doing a great job as a family. And it's not easy. We've all made mistakes, I'm sure, but I think you're doing a great job. What's your relationship with the church today, Kurt? Um, well, my best friend recently sent me the following text, and I actually just copied it here and want to read it because I think it probably perfectly sums up where I am today. And so, quote, this is what he wrote. I've been listening to the song, It Is Well With My Soul, all morning and intermittently crying. I felt so touched by it and felt really impressed to share it with you. I think because of being gay that we both internalize somewhere deep down inside that something is wrong with our souls, that something is fundamentally wrong with who we are. I love how the song beautifully affirms over and over again that everything is well with my soul. I'm beginning to believe that more and more. I love that the song, the song also points me toward Christ. I think I can get lost in the weeds a little with the church sometimes, focusing on policies of things that annoy me, make me angry. I lose sight of why I love the gospel. I really do believe to my core that all my weaknesses and sins are nailed to the cross and died there because of Christ's sacrifice for me. I love the Savior of my soul. I know he sees me and loves me, um, unquote. Um, I know that God has directed and continues to direct my path. And like my mission, it has been tough and beautiful. I believe if God loves and directs me, he will do that for all of his children. And so I'm, I think I'm more focused as I've got older on this vertical relationship that I have with God and not so much on this horizontal. I love the gospel. I absolutely do. But I'm always going to like, what does God want me to do? Where is he directing me? And, you know, and I'm, I'm that's really where my focus is. I I was up actually in Salt Lake, you know, not too long ago at a singles ward that my daughter was attending, and she was actually the Relief Society president of that ward, and she was a little late. And I'm sort of looking around, and and I'm looking at the, you know, probably obviously gay chorister, and I'm looking at some of the kids that were sitting alone, they're, you know, were a little awkward, and I'm looking at the guy who thought it was a good idea to come to church in a canary yellow suit. And I'm looking at, you know, the cliques of the cool kids in the back. And I just also had this, just this overwhelming and maybe thinking about my own life of just some sadness. Like, well, how's life going to work out for these, these young men and women? And then I had, this question given to me by the Spirit, a very direct, actually two questions. And the first one was, Kurt, do you think that I'm big enough for them? And, you know, I had to think about that for a while. And, but then the next question that gave me the clarity I needed, he said, Kurt, do you think that I've been big enough for you? And I started thinking about a lot of the 
things that I've already shared, and I, I have to come back just because of my experience and know that God has been big enough for me, and if he's been big enough for me, he would be big enough for them, regardless of where they were, you know, and what they were experiencing or what sadnesses or burdens or being gay or whatever that was facing them. And it was really a powerful experience to me. Um, you know, his gay children need direction on a church level. And in a lot of ways, it's going to come from this vertical relationship that they have with God because there isn't a really clear path for us. There hasn't been a lot of light and knowledge that's been given for us. And But I believe that that is why the Spirit seems to be moving on you and many allies like you to provide space and support for us. If an LGBTQ plus friend came to me, and, and maybe I couldn't have said this a few years ago, Richard, but if they came to me and said, I feel God is directing me, for example, to step away from the church, because I believe in this powerful idea of free agency, and I've seen how God has directed me, then I have to trust that he will direct all his children as they seek it. And if they came to me and said that, then I would say, then leave. And if a friend said, I feel God directing me to date and marry someone of my own gender, then I would say, do it. Um, I've had friends who have felt directed to do those things, who have felt that through seeking, you know, through fasting and prayer and attending the temple. And why would I stand and say, oh, no, that couldn't be, um, because I know the good and wonderful people they are and why they were seeking that. But I've also had friends who feel God calling them in just as powerful a ways to be celibate or to enter into celibate partnerships. And others feel God is calling them into mixed orientation marriages like he has me. And to them, I would also say, do it. If that is where God is calling you, he will support you and he will open up those effectual doors. And, and I know people who flourish in all these different paths. And I had a friend who was saying, well, how could you say that? Where's the scriptural um, example that would say we could say that? And I said, well, there's several, but one that comes to my mind is Nephi, who runs across Laban, who's drunk and passed out. And the spirit comes to him and says, slay him. And here's Nephi, who his doctrine, his what God had taught him and what he'd been taught his whole life is, thou shall not kill. And here's this helpless man and the spirit directing him to do something that was contrary to what he thought the doctrine was. And, and that he's told, you know, slay him. And then he's given the reason, you know, that it's better that one man perish than the whole nation perish in unbelief. And I believe that God looks at his children and their own individual lives, and he does not want them to perish. Um, I wrote, uh, I copied this down too, and I wrote the following to a friend recently who has felt God directing him into a same-sex marriage. And this is sort of my thoughts and little paragraph I wrote him. 
And I just said, quote, I believe more and more in the gift of agency and choice God has given his children. I see him directing his gay children in so many radical ways, some into mixed orientation marriages, others into celibacy, and many into same-sex marriages. I am comforted in the knowledge that God knows each one of us individually, and if we seek his guidance, he will direct our paths for good. I know God has placed me in a mixed orientation marriage because he knows it would be the best environment for me to flourish and return to him. I am grateful to have my gay brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, regardless of our choices, we will continue to be maligned and judged by some, but let's be comforted in following the path Christ has for us and let the consequences follow, unquote. And that's, so that's my thoughts and sort of where I'm at today. I'm really comfortable with what you shared there, and I've learned, I just love the the doctrine of personal revelation. I love the doctrine of agency, and I love the doctrine of the scope of our plan of salvation and a loving Heavenly Father. So when someone leaves our faith or someone chooses a path outside of our faith, I just leave that with God. I don't, and I just just leave that with God. Um, mm-hmm. And I honor, and I love what you're teaching here to stay close with God and seek personal revelation. With God, I've heard Tom Christofferson in a church setting talk about what would you counsel to dating same gender partners? And he'd say, I'd counsel them to sit down, pray together, hold hands, and ask God what they should do. Um, and so I think that's just what you're teaching here. And then we leave it at the Savior's feet. So um, this is a complicated space. And so I love your voice. Um as the LGBTQ person that's wrestled with this for decades, now giving thoughtful counsel to other people. I just think you know the space, you know God, he's clearly in your life, and so I trust your voice to help other LGBTQ people. And I do realize that there's not a lot of light and knowledge yet on this subject, and I just think more chapters will be written by our church leaders as they continue to wrestle with this, and, and, and I think that's fine. What are your hopes in regard for the church, Kurt, and its LGBTQ members? Well, I have I have a lot of hope um, for the church, and I have a lot a lot of hope for the members of the church um, providing space for us. And every experience that I've had where I felt, you know, taken the leap of faith and shared with very specific people, I have always come away from it feeling loved, feeling accepted. And I have had this uh, recurring dream for the last several years. And in the dream, um, there is a feast going on. So it would be like the feast of the, the, you know, the body of Christ, the firstborn. And, and, but But in the feast, they're feasting, and in the recurring dream, I'm always on the ground just trying to pick up crumbs, you know. And so through this dream, I've always been focused on me, and, like, I feel this deprivation, this starvation, this not being seen. But it was a couple weeks ago, 
I had this dream again. And, and it was interesting that God came into the dream and said, asked me that for the first time, he says, I want you to focus on those that are feasting on the table above you. I want you to look at them and not at you. And then he began to ask me some questions. And the first question he asked me is, why haven't they made space for you at the feast? Was the first question he asked. And then the next question he asked, why are you invisible to them? And then without me even answering that in the dream, he tells me why. He said, the reason is they don't know you're there. And then he directed me, he said, you need to open your mouth. And I think, as I think about the members, there's this thought that from that dream that as we as LGBTQ plus members begin to open our mouth and say, we're here, we love God, we love this gospel, we, we want to be a part of this, I believe, and I have this hope, that the members of that feast will shift their chairs over and they will say, then come and feast with us. Now we know who you are, and now we know you are there, and we do not want you on the floor trying to find substance in the crumbs that maybe up to this point is all that you've had to eat. Well, that put tears in my eyes again. Shift your chairs and welcome to the table. There's so much powerful imagery of that concept, a feast at the table. The crumbs are LGBTQ members, perhaps even really good people at the table that want to do the right thing, but haven't known mm -hmm. LGBTQ people are there. And then as you open your voice, like you're bravely doing in others, um, well-meaning people at the table shift their chairs and welcome you. Um, that's really powerful, Kurt. And um, it's a lot, it kind of goes to the question when I meet someone that's been in the closet, so to speak, for decades, it's sort of what's the upside of coming out of the closet? It complicates potentially your relationship with your ward, with your spouse, with your children. Um, so there's a lot of downsides to coming out. And I think it's fine if you don't feel anybody listening to this podcast that isn't your path to come out. I think Kurt and I would say that's fine. But I do think that many more are coming out um, and it's just part of God's plan. There's, it's time at that table, so to speak, that you're describing for the seats to turn. We're at a point in society's maturity that we're, we can turn our chairs and we want to turn our chairs. And it's, it's just part of the gospel of Jesus Christ progressing. Um, how can the church members better support their LGBTQ members? Well, as I shared my story, I think every story when you share, there has to be a call to action. And so my call to action to the members is that, that I pray that the wards that have LGBTQ plus individuals in their midst is that they will become family, you know, especially for these ones that have filled that their calling is to remain celibate, then we need to step up. The wards need to step up 
and expand their definition of what it means to be a family. And I think that's what really the proclamation is saying when it says the calamities will come, you know, if we don't honor these families. I think we need to read that in a much larger context, that this idea of family for God isn't just about this little cute nuclear family, you know, with big walls around it. I think what he's saying is, it's this body, this family of Christ. So I, my challenge, my call to action is when you know that you have an LGBTQ plus member is that you open up your life, you open up your home, your family to these truly exceptional sons and daughters of God, that you take that role of becoming our fathers and our mothers, our brothers and our sisters, our sons and daughters in every sense of the word. You know, bring us into your lives and into your homes. Make us family. And I don't think God is, I don't think he's no longer, I don't think he's no longer content to have us remain his LGBTQ plus children to remain on the fringes and in the shadows um, because the shadows are no place a son or daughter of God is meant to be or can really flourish in. And there was a lot of years in my life that I stood in those shadow places and I didn't flourish I didn't expand. I wasn't meeting the measure of my creation. And we, like all God's children, that we are not exempt um, as his gay children, but we're also commanded to place our unique lights on the top of the hills. And we bring so many beautiful talents and sensitivities and creativity um, to this body of Christ that needs to be embraced and will cause this body of Christ to expand in so many beautiful ways um, that it, I don't think it could otherwise. And, and it's also my call to action is we want you not to reach down to us, but to reach across to us, that we are in full fellowship. We are equal with you. Um, in every sense of the word. And I know that because God treats me as an equal son or daughter. And so I believe that that as members of the church do that, as they begin to see the unique talents of these wonderful members and embrace them and encourage them, that there is going to be this beautiful spice and flavor that will be brought into our wards in such a way. And we're also a group of people that completely understands the need to minister to the one and minister to the fringes because we've spent so much time there ourselves and there's so much to learn from that. I think we need, um, and I would say that we need more than just passive allies. And what I would say, what I mean by that is if a gay member comes to you and shares a story, they need more than you to say, oh, we love you and, you know, great. And uh, that doesn't really change anything, but then that's it. You know, it's never talked about again. We need active allies that are going to step toward us when we have the courage to stand up and say, hey, I'm here. You know, maybe you didn't know I was here. Um, but I'm here, and that they do more than just 
be passive about it. I think we need active allies and, and being willing to listen to us. Um, we just, most of us have so much to say because we haven't been able to speak for so much of our lives and being willing to pull that out of us. I want to hear more of your story and to do it until we're done talking. And, you know, if you had something you wanted to say, like in my life for 58, 59 years, I have a lot to say. And I've had a lot of thoughts to say. And hopefully you can be patient with me. Um, you know, I mean, one of the worst things, and I've heard this, you know, it's a gay member coming and wanting to dialogue with some of their leaders. And at some point, the leaders, um, and this has happened uh, recently, I heard this, the leader saying, oh, I think you're being obsessive, you know, over this. And, and your, you know, your identity should be in Christ. And why are you putting it in this? And it's like, please don't shut down the conversation by saying those type of things. Um, let us speak, you know, let us choose the identity that that we seek at this time. I mean, even the, our church says, which I think is beautiful and is ahead of a lot of the religions, they say, however somebody wants to identify themselves, honor that. And if you're not clear of why, that is, ask them what that means. You know, when that person used lesbian or gay, Tell me what that means. Don't make an assumption that just because I say I'm gay, it means I'm living a sinful life. Um, ask me what that means. Um, just a real quick example about being an active ally and why that's powerful. There's a stake that's um, an adjoining stake to us that's doing a family home evening now that the stake president has called, you know, some people to organize for LGBTQ plus members. And I, my wife and I attended the, the first time that they met a few months ago. And it had a lot of uh, um, gay members, but also um, allies. And it was interesting for me, Richard, it was the first time I think I've been in a room with allies. I mean, wow. a lot of my work has been just all of gay, you know, maybe it's a room of just sort of gay members trying to fellowship and strengthen each other. But there was something so beautiful that the allies were able to contain a very powerful boundary in a sacred space for us. And their whole desire there was to bless, to strengthen, and um, to be there for us. And there was something so leveling, I think, for me by that experience. And so be an ally. Um, the stake also is doing these ally nights where they're inviting members just to come in and have questions. And some of us will go there and just casually, you know, answer whatever questions they have. And, you know, some of them, they ask these questions and you're like, wow, I mean, you're thinking that, but in just a very gentle, loving, patient way, you know, we're willing to say, well, maybe you should think about it this way, or this is how we think about it. And so those are just some of my thoughts about how we can support. I'm just so touched by so much of that. Um, and just the journey you've been on and that you've never been to around a group of allies and how helpful that is. And, and just to start to see community being created in a, in a stake here and there, it would be consistent with our doctrine to create an FHE night for allies. That's not necessarily in the handbook, 
but creating tools to minister to our members and, and bear their burdens and help them is part of our doctrine. So I love what that stake is doing, and I'm aware of some of the people that are attending that ally night, and I admire LGBTQ people and their patience to educate those of us that are new to the space. And, um, and that takes sometimes a bit of patience, But and I love what you taught about one of the best things we can do as allies is listen and listen and listen and not turn the conversation to our gay relative or our gay experience or experience with a gay person. Um, and sort of sometimes when someone says they have cancer, not to compare being gay with cancer, please don't take it that way, anybody. But then we sort of shift the conversation when someone opens up about their own cancer diagnosis to all the people we know with cancer versus what we really need to do is stay focused on that person as they're bravely opening up about a difficult situation. And and that's what you're teaching us here, Kurt, is to listen and keep listening. Um, so I've, you're, we're going to kind of conclude this podcast. Um, tell our listeners if, you know, some may think there's no gay people in my ward. What would you say to somebody who says there's no gay people in my ward and and statistically, how many gay people are sitting there in each ward that are active members of our ward that are just closeted? Um, well, I, one really thing we do as as LDS is we just keep having gay children. <laughs> <laughs> We're very good at that. Um, statistically, um, every ward probably has somewhere between four and five uh, gay members. And and it's interesting, you know, even though I'm not really out, is I've been telling certain members lately, um, just, you know, if it pertains, I'll say, well, you know, we have gay members in this ward, and which we do. I mean, there is one other couple in my ward that's in a mixed orientation marriage um, that I know of. And so there is, they're there. And I think it's important to to realize that, that they're in our midst. And, and I guess maybe the sad part for me is, well, why, if they're in our midst, why don't we know? And maybe that shows the sort of work we need to do in our wards and, and uh, the church to have like, what will allow them to feel like they can be, you know, come up from underneath the table and just say, here I am, you know, and wanting to be loved and wanting to be included. And so they're there. And if they're not there, it means that they've left, and which is also really sad for me um, because I think our church, we can flourish. Um, we can, we can have a wonderful experience if if our fellow members make a space for us at the feast. What would you say in closing? I have two questions for you. What would you say, and this may have been answered as you've shared so much, what would you say for parents of an LGBTQ child? And then the next question is, what would you say to our younger LGBTQ members? Well, the first thing I would say to the parent is, is that I think the stance that God really wants for you as a parent is just to be curious. 
And there's something really wonderful about that. So if you have a gay child come to you and, and tell you that, I think the worst thing you can do is, well, let me tell you what the doctrine is. Um, because that child is very aware of what the doctrine is. But if you come to them and say, well, tell me what this means. Tell me what you're experiencing. Tell me where you feel you're being led. And I think by being curious with your gay children, what that's going to happen is they're going to feel safe and they're going to draw closer to you. And perhaps what influence you could have will, will happen because they're going to trust you and they know that you're interested and you're not judging them. And so I would just say be curious um, about their experience and be willing to talk. I mean, recently, um, I'm now the priest quorum advisor and our uh, state president, um, I'd had, a, I'd had a bunch of dialogues with him about perhaps doing a fifth Sunday or fireside. And his, his first comment was, well, you know, this affects so few people in our state. Um, he said, I know maybe, if, you know, three or four, um, maybe I can suspect a few others. And, and I, he goes, I really feel my responsibility if I'm going to do something that will have, you know, the most bang for his buck and affect the most people. And, and I said, hey, President, could I push back a little bit on that? And he said, sure. And I said, well, you know, typically each ward is going to have, you know, four to, you know, four to five um, statistically gay members. But I said, above that, I said, how many in each ward have gay siblings, gay children, um, gay friends that they love? I said, you're starting to see quite a few. And then I said, and then just the final point, I said, the millennials, the recent studies they've been doing on them, that one of the top reasons that they are leaving the church is around LGBTQ plus reasons. And I said, you start looking at all those demographics, and then you're starting to see that this is not an outlier issue. And he, because of the good man he is, later um, texted me and just said, you know what, that has been so transformative to me, where I thought it really didn't affect hardly anybody. Now I'm thinking, well, who doesn't it affect? And he was actually willing just recently to to give a talk in state conference on, on loving those on the fringe. And the main example he brought up was LGBTQ plus members. And one thing he did is he asked the congregation, he said, Every, I'd like everybody to raise their hand who knows somebody and loves somebody who is LGBTQ plus in their life. And it was powerful to look around and see pretty much 100% of that congregation raised their hand. And so it gave me, um, I think there's something powerful in that when we get our leaders speaking about it, because it gives permission on award level to also talk about it. So I took that advantage. And so a few weeks ago in priest quorum, um, we have, I have my brand new bishop, first time he'd attended sitting next to me. And I just said, hey, I want to talk about our state president's uh, talk. 
And I said, I want to ask you, how many of you um, know somebody who's LGBTQ plus? 100%, of course, he's, you know, young man, maybe 15, 16 of them. And then I look at the bishop and I said, hey, bishop, if one of these young men came to you and told you that they were gay, what would you say? And he gave, you know, this beautiful answer, but the most important thing I was trying to share to these young men, maybe this sort of answered your second question, is is that it's a safe place, that they are good men um, to seek to seek help and to counsel. And, and the other advice I would give um, these young men and women, these gay members, these teenagers, is that just develop your relationship to God develop your relationship with Christ and, and let let them direct you, you know, wherever that leads, you know, let them guide you. And as, as my own life and hopefully the story that I've shared as I've, you know, way down the road is that God will, you know, God will direct you if you seek it. And wherever I have followed that path, wherever I have felt that inspiration and done it, only good, only good things have come into my life. And I've also been pleasantly surprised that when I've opened up, when I shared with my first bishop, when I've shared with friends, that even though there's this part of me that's thinking, oh, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be ostracized, that none of that has occurred in my life. Um, I have only been embraced unloved. And and I also need my LGBT plus Q friends, you know, because there is still some challenges, you know. Um, but we there's also a, a unique fellowship there. And I think that's the really necessary part of our experience of, of having those in our lives that think and understand completely in a way that maybe a straight ally couldn't even understand of what our experiences is and seek them out and seek out good people um, to mentor you. And and I think maybe in some ways that's maybe what God's calling me is I think he needs older members who have been down the road um, to say, hey, it can be done. You know, with God's help, nothing is impossible. And even navigating what it means to be gay and Christian, um, that there can be a path and it can be very unique. And I won't judge what that path is. And I see God, and I do believe God directing his children in a lot of different ways as gay children. But there should be peace for that, for whatever that young, you know, that young gay teenager is to realize that God will direct me. And if I follow that, that I will have joy in my life and that I will be able to return back to him. Thank you, Kurt. I'm so touched by your closing answer. I'm sitting, I'm in your stake conference right now. And what you've done by just engaging your stake president and in a kind moment and him being humble enough to be teachable and then leading to the talk he gave. But I'm, I'm, I love the vocabulary you said he used where he talked about if you have an LGBTQ person in your, uh, and he, said positive things from what you said, but I'm thinking about all those hands going up 
And then if I'm a closeted LGBTQ person in your state, I'm 16, 17, 18 or older, and I'm seeing all those hands go up and the impact that would make on me and how I feel and that these people, it's, it's very symbolic to me to have those hands go up. And if I'm a closet LGBTQ person, I just wonder about the burdens that were lifted that day and a little more hope given, or that people have family that are LGBTQ that we never talk about that subject to church, just felt like, you know, progress was made. So if local leaders are listening to this podcast, I, that's, you know, a really powerful example of what can be done with the thoughtful impression. And I wish everybody in the church could listen to this podcast, Kurt. I feel like I've been to at the, you know, in a training meeting um, that I was probably craving for before my YSA assignment to understand better how to minister to all the people I've priesthood responsibility. And my journey, of course, is it's the first time as a singles ward bishop, I sat down and listened to a gay man and I realized I had priesthood responsibility to do the right thing for this brother and and priesthood responsibility for the closeted people in my ward. Um, I had a strong impression there were, and what was I going to do to give them hope and heal them and and point them like you're talking about to Christ? So um, any concluding thoughts before we sign off, Kurt? I just want to thank you, Richard, for providing space um if you had not taken up your call in your personal ministry and followed the spirit then this conversation wouldn't be happening and there you're an example to me of somebody who is following god in a very unusual somewhat radical way and and i think that is really if if each one of us really goes to God and say, what do you want? What is what is my purpose in this life? Um, I think he will direct us in very radical ways. And I think when we do that, we do find out in such a unique way that we can touch and influence so many people in our lives. And, and that's actually a line in my patriarchal blessing that I will touch and influence the lives of many people. And as a closeted, you know, in the shadows member, that was never going to happen. And, and it's interesting that God has looked to the place of my deepest shame and pulled out of that my experience of coming to know him from that place and also directing me to open my mouth and to to minister and to bless others. And then I think, well, isn't that what it means in the end of taking up our cross and following him? I think it's usually going to come out of our place of deepest shame as we let God come in and make something something beautiful of that place that we have hidden, tried to hide away so much in our lives. And that when he does that, we truly, for me at least, I come to understand how Christ said he would descend below all things, my things, and that he could make of those places, those swampy places of my life, those dark places, and by bringing light to them, make something beautiful. It sort of reminds me of Nauvoo, just some horrible swamp 
But when the Saints came in and drained it, they created out of that a beautiful city. And I think if we give ourselves over to God, that he can take those places, those places of sorrow and shame and fear, and by straining those, he can create something really beautiful from those. Wow. Well, thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Mary, if you're listening, Kurt's wife, your three wonderful children, and thank you for teaching us about the gospel of Jesus Christ today, Kirk, and and your life as a gay Latter-day Saint. And on behalf of all the listeners, I think five to 10,000 people listen to each episode now, and that's because of people like you that bravely step forward and want to share your stories. On behalf of all of our listeners, we love you, brother. We are grateful for who you are and your journey and sharing that with us and the, and the things that you're doing now to help more people join in that feast and thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of listen, learn and love hosted by Richard Osler.